You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Great to see you. I'm going to encourage you to pick up your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we want you to take the one in the seat in front of you as our gift to you. I also encourage you to open up your bulletin. There's a place for you to make notes. There's some fill in the blanks. Hopefully help you keep on track. 1 Kings chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 5. God, I pray you would help me, simple man, to uh, proclaim the truth that we see in your word, as uh, Pastor Mark so wonderfully um, articulated. Uh, We can trust your word. The apostles trusted in your word. Uh, 2,000 years of people have trusted in your word, and we can trust in your word. That in every word of it, there is something that we can take from it, uh, something you have left for us to know. And help us today uh, to know what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are coming today to the close of our series in the life of David. Um, We follow David on this uh, journey through First and Second Samuel and now concluding in First Kings. We've uh, looked at before his conception into his uh, younger days, into his adolescence, into his uh, manhood. Uh, we've, we've watched a life of insignificance in the world's eyes uh, become a life of a superstar pretty much overnight. We've seen David in the best parts of his life when he had a, a deep dependence on God, Uh, So much so that he was called a man after God's own heart. And we watched him go into a period of neglecting God and and really, as God put it, uh, turning away from him and contempt, holding God in contempt. We've seen him be the savior of the weak and the handicapped and the defenseless, um, to become the butcher of the innocent. And we watched him go from uh, an outcast, a man on the run, to being the most powerful person in the most powerful nation at the time. We've seen his tremendous leadership abilities as he took a bunch of ragtag guys in a cave and trained them to become the most powerful government um, and army that this nation would ever have. And then we've seen him do maybe some of the worst parenting in the Bible. It's, it's It's really a great image of a guy who was like us in every way, from a strong a man with great speed and agility, till last week when we saw him at the end of his life, a man, an old man of 70 years old who was condemned to his bed. Not that every 70-year-old is old. But we're not quite finished yet. I believe there's some very practical lessons that we can take um, from this, uh, the text we're going to look at today, to apply to our lives, some preparations that David could have taken that he didn't take that would have really helped his family to thrive after he was gone. Last week, we looked and focused on the reality that we're all going to die. I hope you got that when we walked away. We're all going to be like David someday, facing the end 
of our lives. And, and I was encouraging you to think critically, think how you can live your lives intentionally now, each day as a gift that the Lord has given you. But I also want to look at today is how we can leave our affairs, how we can leave our life so that our family, when we're gone, uh, will have the least amount of burden on them. Because I can promise you they're going to be burdened when you die. Your death will most likely be a shock. Uh, whether you're younger or older, we always think we have another day in the bank. I've done 23 funerals over the last seven years here at Calvary for people at Calvary. And I can tell you that most of those people were devastated. Even if the relationship wasn't that great, most of the family were devastated. And most of them were surprised. They always thought they had more time. But some people just grieved because they lost the person. And that was really the biggest grief in their life. But some people, some families, the funeral was just like the tipping point. It was after the funeral that all of the great hardship happened. It was sorting out the mess that that person had left their life in that really caused the families the biggest heartache. How their affairs, their estate, their relationships were left and so I want to encourage you today, while you're alive, to think about these things. We're going to have some resources also for you on the website when the, the weekly letter goes out, some, some checklists and some helpers. We've also got somebody coming in to talk to the seniors this month from Fellowship, uh, our denomination, who specializes in this area. So I've got some preparations we can take. Preparation number one, it's in your bulletin. Make sure your will and your wishes are clear and communicated in advance. Let's go to our text, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Adjaniah, the son of Haggath, kept exalting himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared chariots and cavalry and 50 men to run ahead of him. But his father had never once infuriated him by asking, why did you do that? In addition, he was quite handsome and was born after Absalom. So if you remember in our last scene at the start of this chapter that we looked at, he's an old man. He's laying in his bed. He can't really move around. He's bedridden. And then it picks up after that point. His son, his eldest son, or the eldest living son, decides that he is going to become king. I guess to this point, David, David has never really publicly communicated who is going to become the king of Israel after he dies. Now, David is at the end of his life. He spends most of his time in bed. He's not really able to move around on his own. And, and if, you, if you remember last week, we looked at some of the prayer, his last prayer that we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and 29. I encourage you to read that later on your own. Uh, I made the mistake of saying to you this took place before 1 Kings chapter 1. It was actually right after, like within a day or so after this point that we're reading right now. And scholars think David died within a month or so of this point that we're reading so David had many sons, way too many wives. We talked about that some time back. One wife is good enough for any man, and that's all he can handle. But he had 19 sons that we know of and many daughters. Now, his first son was Abnon, which we uh, saw died at the hands of Absalom, tragically, because of um, 
both their choice, but David's lack of parenting. The second son of Daniel was, or sorry, of David was Daniel, a guy we only see mentioned a couple times, a guy we don't really know what happened to him. Scholars think he died, and that's why he didn't become the king. Third in the line was Absalom, who also died at the hands of Joab, another tragedy in the life of David. And fourth is this man, Adjaniah who is naturally the one who would, we would assume to take the kingdom because it's usually the oldest living son would become the heir and take over the kingdom. And so it appears uh, that up until this time, David had never really told him, hey, you're not going to be the man. I've got somebody else down the line. There's nothing we can see that he publicly professed it. And, but yet we find down later in this chapter, uh, I encourage you to read it on your own, that David had already promised Bathsheba that her son Solomon was going to become king. And so David had made some promises that he had not told the rest of the family, and it seems like he waited and he waited until he was essentially on death's doorstep. But his son, Ajaniah, decided that he was going to take matters into his own hand. He was going around telling people, I'm actually going to become king. Just so you know, I, did, I know David's, uh, my dad, is, he's bedridden and he's not really of any use, but I'm going to be the king. I'm going to be the man. So we might as well start treating me like that now. And it seems like David had never really corrected him. He heard about it, the text says. He knew this was happening, but he never corrected his son, a problem we see constantly through David's life. Maybe David was afraid of hurting his son's feelings. Maybe he was worried that if he told his son he wasn't going to be king, his son would hate him, and that would be another damaged relationship. Don't know. It's a very real worry for us, isn't it, parents? That we're going to say something, we're going to discipline our kids, and, and our kids are going to turn away from us, and they're going to not like us anymore, they're not going to talk to us anymore. Am I the only one who would say that's a real uh, worry in our hearts? Sometimes that our, our relationship is going to be damaged with our children. I know it's a struggle for some parents. And depending on the sort of um, upbringing you had, Often, we sort of swing hard the other way. You've heard me reference the pendulum effect. We often, if say we were raised in a disciplinary home or where maybe we got spanked or we got disciplined a little harder than we liked, uh, we might, when we come to parenting, swing really hard the other way and be all about the relational. And if we didn't have a good relationship, if we didn't really know we were loved and it was all disciplined, we can be like, it's all about the relationship. I got to keep a good relationship with my child, and therefore I'm not going to discipline them when they need to be disciplined. Sometimes if we grow up in a real relational home, and it was all about how much we love you and, and how precious you are, but there was never any discipline, and maybe you got out of control in your life, and you've, you've come back, and you're like, whoa, I really needed some discipline, and God says it's good, you might swing hard the other way and become very disciplinary, but as we've seen so much in Scripture, when we find ourselves on the extremes, it's often the middle that is the way. The Christian life is a very balanced life. And so in our parenting, Scripture points to both. David didn't do either. Proverbs 19, verse 18 says, Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. That's indicating that, that you have a, a period of time when you can discipline that child, and if you don't, it might lead to their death. Very true in a third world country, and now it might lead to 
problems, problems with the law, addictions, bankruptcies, so on and so forth. Uh, but it doesn't just say discipline them in the scriptures because then Paul encourages us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse, or 6 verse 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Parents, uh, don't be so harsh and critical on your children that they just end up hating you and hating God and, and thinking God is a critical father who's always riding their tail about every little thing that they do. Discipline your children like God disciplines us. And God loves us, and therefore, because he loves us, he disciplines us. It's both parents. We need to have relationship with our children. They need to know they're deeply loved, but they also need to know that if they get out of line, if they cross past the lines we're telling them, there will be a reaction. There will be a discipline. And we're teaching them how to love God and follow God because God draws lines in the sand. He says, I love you. I care for you. These lines are for your welfare and for my glory. Don't cross them. And if you do, I'm going to discipline you and bring you back in line. Now, David's problem was he did neither. He didn't have a good relationship with his kids. He seemed to focus on the kingdom. And he didn't discipline his kids when they needed it. And that led to constant problems for David. So his son does what? Absalom, uh, his older son, already did. He conspired against his father, David. He started to make allegiances within David's own court again. It's like David didn't see this happening again. David was so keen and aware on some areas, but he was so blind and he had blind spots. Uh, and we all have blind spots in other areas of our lives. And so eventually, when he manipulates enough people, he forces the issue. And he starts to tell people, I'm going to become the king. David hears about it, he ignores it. So then he starts to collect more people. He gets one of David's priests. He gets David's top general, Joab. And they go and essentially have a big ceremony of their own. He invites officials. He invites other um, members of his family. And he makes himself king. Reminds me, um, well, I've heard lots of stories um, when I'm dealing with families uh, that are grieving. Uh, but it reminds me of a story I heard about. It wasn't a, a family at uh, Calvary. And so the challenge was, or the problem was, is that the husband had died and the mother had uh, the estate and, and she had, had uh, no will and no uh, clear person that was going to run her will. She never uh, conveyed to her children. She had multiple children what was going to happen when she died. And then she got ill and went to the hospital. And all of the children except one lived far away. And so uh, this child came to her and she needed Bill's page. She was going to be in the hospital for a long time. Uh, and this son uh, went and to the bank, and, but they wouldn't let him do anything. So uh, he, she gave him signing authority and he went to the bank. And he essentially, over the months that would proceed, cleaned his mother out. And all the kids lost what was their part would have been their part of the inheritance because it wasn't clearly communicated and clearly written down beforehand. So the problem festers. We see verse 11. So then Nathan said to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Ajaniah, the son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David doesn't even know about it? Now please come and let me advise you. Save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go, approach King David and say to him, My lord, the king, did you not swear to your servant your son Solomon would become king after me? And is he not the one to sit on your throne? So why has 
Adjaniah become king. At that moment, while you are still there speaking to the king, I'll come in after you and I'll confirm your words. And they, they go on to make this ruse. And they do it. And they essentially do what the other son has done. They deceive David. David is a guy who's asleep at the wheel. He's supposed to have his hands on the wheel, but everyone is manipulating him because he doesn't see in advance. He doesn't take steps in advance. And if you don't make it clear to your family, and I'm not just talking about people in their senior years. I'm talking about anyone who has somebody, uh, if you have a spouse or if you have children, you can be in your young years. If you don't make it clear to them, What's going to happen when you die? They might fight over it. It very well, most likely, will lead to fighting. I remember this uh, other family that I was dealing with uh, back in, or sorry, that I was friends with back in Kitchener. And the man, he was about 10 years older than me, and uh, his mother uh, had lived with him in her senior years, but she had a cottage. But nobody knew what the will was. And he remembers telling me that everyone just sort of, all of the children, I don't know how many there was, they just sort of assumed that they were getting the cottage when the mother died. And so she died, and the will opened up, and he got the cottage. But it resulted, because it had never been talked about before, in them turning against him and coming after him. Just a big mess with all sorts of factions within the family. So David didn't make it clear. You've got to make it clear. Because now he's got divisions within the family, conspiring against him, manipulating him. And so the David, Bathsheba goes to David, and, and as she's pouring out her soul and putting on a big act, Nathan walks in and, and acts surprised, and, oh, did you hear this is happening? Oh, I didn't know you are here, Bathsheba. And they manipulate the king, and so the king says, get me up, and they get him up, and they go, and they get the priest, and they anoint Solomon as king right there and then, and, and then they blow the horns throughout the city, and then they put him on uh, the king's donkey and take him throughout the city streets of Jerusalem, proclaiming Solomon as the new king. So we've got two factions in the family uh, who think they're going to be king, two sides. And while this is going on in Jerusalem, they're having a party. Janiah is having a party, celebrating with his friends and with the officials. And they hear about what's happened, and so they scatter, and they turn on him. And and he goes to to his brother Solomon, and he says, oh, please have mercy on me. And for a while, he gets mercy. But then when David is dead within a few months, that faction gets taken out by Solomon's side. Janiah gets taken out. Joab gets taken out, and we can assume a lot of other people get taken out. And I'm not sure if it was laziness or if it was selfishness or just fear on David's part, but his lack of planning and very clear communication will cost his family dearly. And another tragedy, like think about the sons and the daughters of David. What destruction that this man's lack of awareness caused in his family's life. You remember Prince, the recording artist? Some of you probably had his poster up on your wall in your teenage years. Prince, he left 300 million. Dustin just said he did. Uh, He had 300 million left when he died a couple of years ago in his estate. And from reading about it, lots of the family thought they were getting it, but he had no will, no will whatsoever. And so... People were fighting over his 300 million, and they're still fighting about it three years later. Let that not be you. Prepare now. If you have a spouse, if you have children, if you have dependents, 
It doesn't matter if you're 25. Take the time now. Settle your affairs. You might think you have a long life ahead of you. Hezekiah did in, chap- in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, in the days of Hezekiah, in, the, in those days Hezekiah became terminally ill. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came to him and said, this is what the Lord says, set your house in order for you are about to die and you will not recover. Hezekiah is only 39 years old at this point. As a young man, even in those days, he probably thought he had oodles of time. But God comes to him and says, get your house in order because you're going to die. Now, he goes to God and he says, remember all the things that I did for you in the past, God? And God says, okay, yeah, I remember. You want more time? I'll give you more time. He gives him 15 more years. But he still dies at 55. We never know how long we have. But we have today. David didn't get his house in order. Causes great confusion and bitterness and family turmoil. And when you die, you want to, to know that your family is just going to have to grieve the loss of you, that, that your estate and everything else will go as smoothly as it possibly can when it comes to your responsibilities. Because I can promise you this, your family is going to be grieved. There is going to be a weight on their shoulders when you die. It's going to be a surprise. That's just inevitable. They're going to have to deal with that weight. But you don't want to put more weight on their shoulders because you just didn't get around to it. Maybe you fear your death, but hopefully you don't fear it now that we talked about just how great it's going to be after that. I doubt that many of your families are going to get together and have a parade and sing, ding dong, the witch is dead, witch old witch, the wicked witch. I doubt it's going to be like that. They're going to grieve. They're going to be lost. And I'm not saying go ahead and spend everything you have now so that they don't have to uh, divide anything up because Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so you want to leave something to them. So I've got six practical points, six practical points that I believe are biblically based um, for you to take. And like I said, we'll have more resources for you after. Number one, have an up-to-date legal will. The Angus Research Institute, which is one of Canada's bigger research institutes, uh, it's, a nat- it's a worldwide um, recognized one, reported in 2019 that 51% of Canadians do not have a will. 51% of Canadians do not have a will. And out of those 49%, 35 of them have an up-to-date will, meaning their life is so far advanced now that the old one they have really doesn't speak to the situation they're in. That should catch your attention, and that's most likely some of you. Maybe you had one 30 years ago, but the situation has changed. But isn't it great to know that God has a will of sorts? Now, now when I say a will of sorts, I don't mean it's a will saying when God dies, what everyone's going to get. But God has books uh, that say who will inherit his kingdom. Did you know that? Revelation 20 verse 15 talks about who won't inherit it. It says, and if anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life, that's one of his books, was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone who has not, uh, through faith in Jesus, committed themselves to him and received his forgiveness for their sins uh, cannot enter heaven because heaven is a place where sin cannot enter. 
It's like you can't get through it unless you have been cleansed of your sin, and you get that by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who has told God, I don't need you, I'll run my own life, they're not in the will. But he has other books we read about. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 and 18 says, And those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. God knows if you have put your faith in him, if you have committed yourself to him, if your desire is to honor him in your perfections, in your imperfections, as Am I imper- uh, as do I mess up big time. Paul goes on later to talk about it more in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. He's talking about how when we stand before God, and uh, not, not when we stand before him and he asks us, did we believe in him? Did we trust in him? Did we love him? But after that, there's going to be two judgments. First one is going to be for those who believed and not believed, and there will be a separation uh, from hell and heaven. But then there's a second one for the believers, and Paul talks about it. He says, the foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience a loss, but he himself will be saved, but only through the fire. Uh, Essentially what he's saying is, is your life as a Christian will be put on the examination and, and God's fire will test it. The quality of your work for the time that you walked as a follower of Jesus Christ, what did you do with that? What did you do with your time, your talents, and your treasures? Uh, It will be examined Examined. And the, the stuff that doesn't matter, how many movies you watched on Netflix and, and how many uh, big screen TVs you bought and how many vacations you, you went on, those things won't matter. They don't matter. But the things you did for, for God, for truth, for righteousness, for, for his sake, those things will stand the test of the fire. And you will receive reward for that, an inheritance. So God clearly has it written out on his books, who's where and who's getting what. And so you should have it clearly written out for your family. Number two, ask yourself, will this hurt them or help them? Will it hinder them or help them? There's a great movie. Uh, it's called The Gift. It's, it was made after a book. It's a, it's a really nice uh, movie if you want to sit down and watch a family movie. And, and the theme of the movie is, is that this uh, guy, this gazillionaire, uh, he's really rich. He's dying and he realizes that his children are, are scumbags and he doesn't want to leave the bulk of his estate to them because they're not worthy of it, because they'll just waste it on themselves because they're selfish. But he sees in his grandson a glimmer of hope. And so he leaves this uh, video messages with his lawyer that his grandson is to watch. And that if his grandson actually changes from being selfish like the rest of the family into a person uh, worthy of receiving his, the bulk of his inheritance, then he'll get it. In the end, it does. It's a beautiful story of a, of, of a person, and I always get teary because it reminds me of me, and not that I got billions of dollars, but that, uh, that he was rotten like I was and, and that God changed our hearts. But you want to ask yourself a question. Is this going to make them more of what they already are? That's what somebody told me once. I can't remember who, but it stuck in my mind. Money will just make you more of what you already are. 
And so if you're leaving a bulk of your estate to somebody who's selfish, somebody who hates God, it's going to make them more selfish, and they're going to use it for the things that God hates. But if you're leaving it to a generous person, they're going to become more generous with it. Money just makes you more of what you already are. Something to ask yourself, which rolls into the third point. Would God approve of this decision? Would he approve? If you stand there and say, yeah, that's a good, uh, I think that person should get 20% of what I've given you. Because if you read Matthew 25, uh, 14 to 30, God talks about the stewards. It's the parable of the, the talons. And he talks about how there's three people and he gave each one a certain amount while they're on earth and when he comes back, uh, he will hold them accountable for what he's given them. And two of them used it well and he gave them more, but the one wasted it and he took it away and he gave it to the other. It's the parable of the talents. It's, it's, a, it's a picture that we are stewards and God has given you a certain amount of time, a certain amount of treasures and a certain amount of gifts and he expects you to use them for good. And so... You should ask yourself, as your final act of stewarding what God has given you, would God approve of where I'm going to allot this money? As Jesus so eloquently says in Matthew 7, verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, for they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Which leads into point number four. Think about blessing them while they're still alive. There's nothing wrong with allowing people to enjoy uh, what God has given you and you are planning to give to them while they're alive because you get to see it. And you know what's great about God is he gives us part of our inheritance while we're still on earth. He doesn't just say, okay, now you follow me. It's all going to happen when you get to heaven. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22, but he has put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. He said as a down payment to everything we're going to receive. Romans 8, 23, not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as our first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting the, for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Uh, God says in heaven, you're going to get so many awesome things and he's going to list them. He lists them for us, a lot of them in the scriptures. But he says now as a down payment of everything, you're not one of mine, I'm going to give you my spirit. And my spirit, the third person in the Trinity, is going to live inside of you. And if you allow him, me, start to change you, and out of you is going to produce good fruits, and good things are going to start to happen. That's a down payment. God's allowing us to enjoy just a glimmer of what we're going to enjoy in heaven. And so you should consider that for those that you love. Number five, consider giving to continue God's work. Consider giving to continue God's work while you're, when you die. David goes on to do this in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. I'll just uh, give you, read a little bit of it. It says, then King David, so this is just right after this event has happened. They get him up out of bed. They get him dressed. He goes out in front and and he allots his money, and it says, my son Solomon, uh, David is cho- uh, God has chosen him alone. In his young, he is young and inexperienced. The task is great at building the temple of God. So the best of my ability, I have made provision for the house of my God. Gold, 
for gold articles, silver for silver, bronze for bronze, iron for iron, wood for wood, and onyx stones for mounting, stones of precious colors, all kinds of precious stones in great quantity of marble. Moreover, because I delight in the house of God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the house of my God over and above what I provided for the holy house. God allots a portion of his estate to carry on the work of God after he dies. And that's something you might want to consider doing is whatever the Lord moves you to, allotting a certain amount of it to wherever he has his work on the earth. Last point, you need to inform your family before you die. Inform your family of what you plan to do and what your wishes are before you die. It's great that God doesn't hide what's going to happen after we die, isn't it? That he gives us a a picture into heaven and just how great it's going to be. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in that place, there's there's many rooms and many mansions. I'm going to make a place just for you. And you're going to walk on streets of gold and you're going to get a new body, a body that isn't going to waste away. And in it, you're going to have better relationships in heaven than you've ever had on earth. There's going to be no more pain and suffering. And you're going to get me most of all, God says. You're going to have a purpose. He gives us great hope for the future. He makes it clear, and so too, why shouldn't we? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God, our Father, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And I don't have time to get into what all those things are, but I encourage you to Google everything the Bible says we'll get in heaven and just see how great it is going to be. So what's another preparation that we need to take that David doesn't take? Don't leave your family to deal with your unfinished business. Just quickly, because I know we need to conclude, David leaves for himself in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 5 to 19. He leaves for his family business, messy business for them to take care of. He doesn't deal with all his business on the earth, so he says, Solomon, just so you know, I want you to take out some people because they ticked me off. It's like a scene out of the Godfather movie. It's nasty. It's brutal. It's like, this is how you want to go out, David? You want to whack out a few people because you've got uh, some problems with it that you didn't, weren't man enough to take care of when you were alive? And because he does that, I think it encourages Solomon to go on and take out his other brother. Don't do that. Don't do that. Deal with your business now. Deal with your unfinished business. Deal with the things you've got wrong in your life, the problems with relationships. Deal with them now. Don't wait 20 years. Today, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23, if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother and sister has something against you, then he goes on to say, leave it. Go to that person and make it right. Uh, It reminds me of a story of, of a family that died and uh, that person had a business, and after they, the business got dissolved, uh, but the family didn't know that this person had unresolved issues with other people that were involved in the business. And so they came after the family, stayed in court, and it again got tied up in the courts for a long time. Deal with your business now. As we close uh, this series on the life of David, we've really taken a deep dive into his uh, life. The most celebrated guy, I think, outside of Jesus in the Bible. And as we've come to the end of this, I I named it King David, 
a man like us in every way for a reason. Because I hope you've seen he really is like us. He wasn't beyond us. He had great faith. And through his great faith, God did great things through him. But he is also a big time mess up like you and I. He had the ability to mess up hugely. He was like us in every way. And the Bible doesn't say, look on to David, the author and the finisher of your faith. He says, look on to Jesus. Jesus is the one that is I call him, I've heard him called the 200% man. He was a better David. He was a perfect David. He was the one we are called on to want to be like, to follow after. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 9, adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when it, he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in every way, yet is without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that you may receive mercy and find grace in this time of need. Jesus is the focus. There's lots of good things we can learn from the life of David, but unless your life is focused on the Lord, you're going to be off in the ditches somewhere. He is the one you're going after. He's the 200% man, fully man, fully God, without sin, and he promises to come and live inside of you and help you through this life, making you more into the image of Jesus and less in the old image of yourself, in the image of David and Adam. And so I ask you in closing out this series, have you given yourself over to the Lord? Is he the one you're looking onto? Or is it some celebrity or some politician? Or is it some hero from the Bible? Do you have unfinished business with God? Have you fully committed yourself? Is your name written in the book of life? Are you putting aside for yourselves treasures in heaven instead of building up treasures on earth? Have you settled your eternity? Have you made peace with God? This is the time. This is the place. You never know how long you will live. And God has an inheritance for you that is far greater than anything he will ask you to give up on this earth. And I hope that you will all experience that. Cash in those chips. Embrace that inheritance right now. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to invite Gary to uh, close us in communion. And after communion, if you need prayer, there are going to be some of the elders and uh, their wives up here, and they would love to pray for you. And so we encourage you after communion. Um, and if you don't have a communion cup, you can get it there while I pray. God, thank you so much. Uh, I pray today we would embrace you as our Lord and Savior. Today we would uh, put things and settle our affairs, Lord. For those who haven't settled their affairs, who still got stuff lingering out there, I pray that they would do it soon, Lord, because you never know when you're going to call them to yourself, God. And we want to leave our families uh, with the sort of easiest transition now that we can give them. Give them wisdom as they wrestle with these things and what they should do with the money that you've allowed them to have. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.